When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So real quick before I get into today's talk, which will revolve around the stock market, but but also um, plenty of discussion about precious metals, the bond market, the Fed, and and I'm sure many other things that will come into play here. I want to give a quick reminder and a thank you to all those of you that have switched over to my podcast versus my YouTube channel. I've talked ad nauseum over the last week or or more uh, about why I'd like you guys to switch, about how I'm sick of being at kind of the mercy of, of the YouTube algorithm. I'm sick of them uh, restricting what I would consider free speech or, or just speech that they may disagree with, whether it's political or, or other reasons, uh, through demonetization, removing channels, removing videos, or even just shadow bans, right? The YouTube, al- YouTube algorithm, YouTube as a whole, Google, has a lot of power in terms of, of making sure videos and, and channels are seen by as few people as possible, right? Making it basically impossible to to have your videos seen unless somebody explicitly searches them or looks at your channel right and i feel i've seen this from time to time on my own channel right i tend to try and be be careful with how i title my videos or or what i put in the description but the fact of the matter is that youtube uh you know they create uh closed captions for for almost every video now which means they they know what i'm talking about right what words i use and and if i'm talking about a topic that they deem to be something they don't like, then yeah, I, I feel that I've probably been a part of that shadow ban in the past as well. So I appreciate all of you guys that have switched over. I've definitely noticed the impact. I've noticed the increase in listens and, and I'm definitely building some momentum and, and I appreciate that. But uh, getting back to today's topic, because that's what you guys are here for. Uh, and, and again, down in the comment section, that's where I'm going to leave some links if you want to switch away from YouTube into the podcast world. But getting into today's topic, the stock market. Um, the stock market is huge for people. Uh, I think you know we focus a lot about the precious metals. Uh, a lot of a lot of investors, a lot of fund managers and whatnot focused on fixed income, uh, the bond markets and, and whatnot. But but stock market is huge. I mean what what is maybe the number one evidence that our, our sitting president has for uh, a good presidency or or a good economic growth during his his time in office. It's the stock market, and and it has performed very well since he since he took office. Um, what is it that most people care about at the end of the day that maybe they'll even base their their spending decisions around or or taking a loan out or willing to to increase their their line of credit or, or take out, you know, use credit cards more based on it's, it's how their portfolio, their retirement or their investment portfolio is doing it. And a good chunk of that is based on the stock market, right? And 2019 has been a tremendous year for U.S. stocks. And certainly to some extent, everything I'm talking about here is also true for, for, you know, stocks where my other viewers are listening from, uh, or, or listeners, I should say. Because this is a podcast, guys. But, uh, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, UK, you know, to some extent this is true. I mean, the UK and, and, and plenty of other countries are dealing with some of their own problems. But a lot of this is true, that when the U.S. stock market goes up, 
or when the global stock market goes up, so does your individual country's main stock market exchange. Uh, to put this in perspective, in 2019, the S&P 500 is up over 29% as I'm recording this. The NASDAQ is up over 38%. And the reason I always include the NASDAQ versus the Dow Jones is because uh, the NASDAQ tends to, to outperform during bull markets and, and underperform, vastly underperform during bear markets, right? And so what I'm saying here is, is essentially that I see it as, as it even being an even larger bubble, but, but a huge return in 2019. Now, when kind of perma bulls and, and huge you know, stock market cheerleaders, you know, even CNBC, are talking about you know, just how well the stock market has done in 2019 and, and why you know, anybody that didn't buy stocks has totally missed out, I'll remind you guys that this isn't consistent with their whole buy and hold over the long term, it's going to do really well type of strategy. Um, to put this in perspective, uh, the... Yes, it has done very well in, in 2019, the stocks, uh, U.S. stock market. But largely that is skewed by a, a really terrible fourth quarter of, of 2019, right? Right around Christmas time, it was, you know, the Dow Jones was teetering on the brink of, of a bear market, right? And so if you look at their current valuations compared to their highs in 2018, it's a far more modest return in the last year and a quarter, basically, or maybe a little bit over that uh, for the S&P in the ballpark of 10% and the NASDAQ slightly higher, right? So that tells a bit of a different story. With that being said, though, 2019 has been a huge year because of that big ramp up and then ultimately this huge move up in the last quarter of the year, which I think, well, I'll get to the why I think that's been the case. Uh, but there's been a lot of people talking about, you know, what is next for the stock market, right? Zero Hedge today published an article talking about, uh, you know, in years following a 25% rise in the stock market, 25 plus percent, what tends to happen the next year? And and generally, it's it's a pretty good year. Now, I, I will say that the, the, it's hardly a sure thing. Uh, 2020 is, is, many, is different from many other years in which, you know, following these 25 plus percent returns, uh, we're, we're not coming out of a recession or we're not two years out of a recession. It's not like 2017, 2018, we're in a recession and now things are turning around in 2019 and then they're going to continue to turn around in 2020. No, it's, it's far different from that. If anything, we're very much at the, the end of a cycle here. Um, and also, you know, it's, well, we're in a different era today. Right uh, since since the Great Recession, you know we we have an even greater Fed put than ever. Whether you call it the Bernanke, the Yellen, the Powell, or the Greenspan put, uh, of, of course the Greenspan put was in place before the Great Recession, but the Great Recession uh, reinforced that view by the markets and 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 more than ever assured them that the the Fed is here to make sure the stock market doesn't fall too much. Right. And so, you know, I think, you know, many people would, would point that out as a statistic that following a year like 2019, stocks tend to perform pretty well the following year. But I think it's so much more complicated than that, right? You even have uh, Joseph Davis. This is Vanguard's chief economist. Vanguard is, is one of the largest, I don't want to say asset managers in the world. I guess you could call it that. They run a lot of ETFs. I'm sure many of you guys are familiar with them. A lot of... of um, various uh, index funds and whatnot. Uh, they have trillions of dollars under management. Um, their chief economist says, quote, financial markets run the risk of getting ahead of themselves. 
And he says he sees a 50% odds of a correction in 2020 against what he terms a more typical figure of about 30%. So it's not a coin flip. Or I guess you'd say it's a coin flip, but that differs from most years, right? Uh, where, where it's more like a 30% chance of a major you know, correction in the stock market. Um, you also have this, this uh, another take. Uh, this was uh, posted over on, on Yahoo Finance. Uh, this is advisor share CEO Noah Hammond um, basically saying that, that the stock market's in a bubble, could continue on this trajectory, um, but that uh, a 50% plunge, a 50% plunge in the stock market is is uh, very much possible. In fact, in the title, they say it's basically inve- inevitable. Um, he says it could be a huge bubble that we're in right now. Uh, this is a quote here, quote, it could be a huge bubble and we could see huge declines, 50 and 60% declines that happen quickly before you have a chance to react to them. He says until then, he recommends staying along the market. And, and who's to argue with that? I mean, if, if the Fed's there to support markets with, with interest rate cuts or QE or whatever else, um, if the markets continue to have this momentum, it's, it's hard to fight that type of a market, right? Um, but a 50 to 60% decline, it's just say 50% decline. I mean, I want to put that in perspective. It sounds totally outrageous but but it's really not it, when you compare it to past recessions or past bear markets is it's very feasible right and so we can use the s&p and the nasdaq as as a basically tools that we can use to to measure what would that look like a 50 percent decline or to put that in perspective so right now the nasdaq uh is is uh you know, close to, to 9,000, right? Uh, of course, half of that would be about 4,500, right? Which would take the NASDAQ basically back to around where it was during the 2016 election, right? I mean, how much real economic growth has occurred since then? Yes, we've had Trump tax cuts. Yes, we've had a ton of Fed easing, some tightening, but then ultimately easing. We've maybe had some economic growth, although if, if you're like me and you believe inflation's hugely understated by by uh the the official you know government numbers then then maybe we haven't had much economic growth but okay but still that's only you know three a little over three years ago now since the since the the 2016 election and and the nasdaq has basically doubled in that time span would it be totally unfeasible to to see it fall back to those numbers right or how about the the s&p 500 Right, which has not performed quite as well, um, but but currently sits at at thirty two hundred and forty, right. So half of that is sixteen hundred and twenty. Um, that would take take it back to you know in the ballpark of where it was back in you know twenty thirteen twenty twelve. Is that so crazy? I mean, if you look as as in terms of a percent return since uh, well, we'll just say since like the recession, right? The S&P has returned, the Great Recession, the S&P has returned something like 200%. The NASDAQ has turned, returned 400%. And how much of that can we honestly say is real economic growth? I mean, say that to me with, with a straight face, that that is representative of the economic growth we've had since then. It's No, it's hard to do. I mean, that brings me to, to you know, my what is so often my, my consensus or my... Consensus doesn't make sense for one person, does it? My conclusion for for the stock market is that it has and continues to be a product of increasing liquidity and increasing credit growth. And if you take away those two supports for the market, then you're left with 
with a huge collapse in valuations, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, are those things going to happen in 2020? Well, I can say this much. January could be a risky month, depending on what the Fed does. The reason being for that is, well, as we've headed into year end, uh, a, a big move up in the stock market has has coincided with a uh, basically a very supportive Fed. They they've injected hundreds of billions of dollars into the repo markets in addition to their sixty billion dollars a month of, of QE, right? And so it's hardly surprising to to see that you know in the last couple of months we've seen stocks up, well, like ten plus percent, you know, in the last uh, you know quarter or the last four or five months, right? It's it's been with a backdrop of increasing liquidity from the Federal Reserve. Right. And so, you know, a big part of this is that the Fed has been injecting a ton of money around year end because they want to avert any sort of of repo market madness any any huge rise in, in repo market rates, which means that a lot of that in theory is going to be removed in January. Now, I want to make one thing clear. You know, my view is, is that the Fed is going to permanently support the repo market or at least until any worry of it is is completely out the window because of of. Uh, the Fed stepping in and, and overall just kind of taking over a lot of these markets through QE, through through lower interest rates and whatnot. I mean, they didn't do much in terms of repo market operations during QE 1, 2, and 3. Uh, but prior to the, the Great Recession, you know, it was, it was fairly common, right? Um, so I, I think they're, they're here to stay most likely until they no longer need to be there, not because the markets are fixed, but because they're totally rigged and controlled. But... Heading into January here, by, by the middle of the month of January, it's expected that the Fed is probably going to be start taking out a lot of this liquidity out of the system, out of the repo markets. Now, who knows? They could change their mind. They could keep it there. But I think the Fed is going to try that to some extent. I think eventually they'll stop. I think they'll they'll what we see here at the end of 2019 is, is going to become more and more the norm in 2020. But they are going to stop. And so the second half of January in particular, heck, even the first half, Right with some of their short-term repo stuff, uh, we could see stocks move down on that pretty significantly. Right. Uh, however, the Fed is still going to be doing QE through the end of March, through the end of quarter one of 2020. And so, if that liquidity, if that credit is is still moving into uh, the stock market, if it, if rates are still being kept low and whatnot, and 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 stocks can still easily access the credit markets to buy back their own stock or to, to roll over debt and whatnot. If uh, consumers can have, have continuing easy access to credit to, to spend money and, and drive up profits or, or sales or whatever, then it's hard to say by the end of quarter one things are going to fall apart unless the Fed really pulls out an, uh, a significant amount out of the repo markets or if the market just says we need more. We need more drugs, and what you're giving us now is, is no longer enough, as is the case usually with, with addicts, right? But following that, you know, if the Fed at all hesitates, if the Fed at all hesitates to continue to support markets with interest rate cuts and or uh, more QE beyond quarter one, it becomes a very risky market at that point. That, that huge part of, of why stocks have gone up over the last 10 years and the last couple months, uh, liquidity injections and, and credit growth, it's uh, an easy access to credit. It, once that's removed, it's, it becomes very risky, right? Um, with that being said, though, I, I'm also a strong believer that fundamentals do matter, 
for the stock market, for bonds, for, for precious metals. And that what the Fed is doing right now, what central banks the world over are doing right now, and, and governments as well in terms of, of fiscal expansion, uh, quantitative easing, monetization of debt, uh, interest rate cuts, ZERP and NERP, you know, those things are not going to fix this problem forever, right? Much like with, I mean, really, what is it that you're doing by by ZERP, by NERP, uh, zero and negative interest rate policy, or lower interest rate policy, we can call a LERP, um, and, and through QE. You're, yes, injecting liquidity into the system, and you're creating a system that is makes it easier for, for banks, individuals, governments to, to carry a large balance sheet, a large amount of debt, and uh, to, to have easy access to, to more debt or to roll over their existing debt, right? That's really what you're doing. And so, as I said, you're, you're creating more liquidity and more credit, right? But we know from past history, even current history, what's going on in China right now, and, and I would argue exactly what's going on in the United States, is that eventually you hit what you'd call like a Minsky moment. There's this law of diminishing returns, that as you create more and more debt, whether it's at the, the government, the consumer, the corporate level, it creates less and less economic growth. And, and why isn't it true that that, why couldn't it be true that that law of diminishing returns can't also be true for some very similar topics, including the amount of stock buybacks, uh, the amount of liquidity entering into the system and whatnot. I mean, this, this can be true for all of those same things. This law of diminishing returns, that the market demands more and more to maintain the same valuations or maintain the same you know, average return year over year. And I think that's kind of what we're heading into, 20, into 2020. I mean, heck, you could ask yourself, you know, how much longer can this go on for? This, this market's being propped up for these factors that I'm talking about here. And, and what I'm saying here is that it, it can't be that much longer. We're 10 plus, sorry, 10 plus years now, right? Furthermore, we're, we have evidence that this, this is slowly but surely unraveling, whether it's through a, a lot of, I think, policymakers, a lot of individuals in places like Europe and Japan, where, where rates are far lower than here in the United States, realizing that this is not feasible long term. I think it was Sweden that recently became the first country to, to actually exit a negative interest rate policy. Never been done before, never been experimented. Why they do it? I think a big part of it was them realizing that this is leads to financial repression. It doesn't fix the issues. It doesn't have the same effect that we thought it would. Right? More and more people, despite the fact that that bonds continue to be bought at, at extremely low yields, or in some cases negative yields, or or traded at those levels, uh, more and more people are realizing that this is crazy. This doesn't make sense. Why are we doing this? Right? Uh, ultimately, you know, people are realizing that this is. This is not the way forward. That that there is no such thing as a free lunch. You see it in China. This this, if you want to call it a Minsky moment, what they've done in the last year is really astounding in China. And that is that they've done, actually, not a whole lot, in terms of their support for markets. You know, in the past, in in two thousand nine, twenty twelve, twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, you know, China has been more than willing to pump credit into the system. To, to keep their own economy afloat and, and in turn keep the global economy in, in afloat. Uh, but what they've been doing this year is actually very little increase uh, in, in their credit impulse. 
Now, is that on purpose, or is it just because there's there's no more to, to increase? I don't, it's, it's hard to say from the outside looking in. But what I can say is that it certainly would appear that either they realized at some point that, that they're at that Minsky moment and they have to, to stop doing this, or or they just realize that it's, that it's just not feasible to continue to do it, period, to, to continue to pump more and more credit into the system. I mean, China's dealing with a huge debt bubble, just... It's slightly different than what we're dealing with here in like the United States or Japan or in Europe, right? Slightly different, right? But but a ton of strong similarities. So is twenty twenty the year? I mean, that's the that's the that's the trillion dollar question, or or however many trillions of dollars we're talking here. Is twenty twenty the year that this law of diminishing returns ultimately becomes a huge problem, right? And there's so much more to it than just this, right? Uh, we we also have to ask ourselves, you know, when will traders wake up and realize that the Fed QE and, and ongoing support from markets and whatnot is as much about supporting high stock market valuations or, or what they would say, you know, trying to spark inflation or keep unemployment low. It's as much about that as it is about helping the U.S. government keep the lights on, right? Pay the pay the electricity bill. I'm talking about funding. The U.S. deficit. I mean, right now the the Fed is essentially monetizing debt at a rate of sixty billion a month. They, they don't call it that. Most mainstream analysts won't call it that. But I can almost guarantee you that what the Fed is adding to their balance sheet right now in terms of of QE is unlikely to be rolled off. I mean, heck, if if that happens in twenty twenty, twenty twenty is is going to turn into probably a fifty percent drop in the stock market type of year if it isn't already heading that direction. Um, but but what the Fed is, uh, you know, what they're doing right now is is monetization of debt, and and people are realizing it, and they're going to realize it more and more that the U.S. government needs the Fed to continue to monetize that debt in order to to keep the lights on, and and that's ultimately extremely inflationary. So so how does this tie into the bond market? How does this tie into the, to precious metals? Well, I'll start with the bond market because I I know less about it, but but ultimately. Let's suppose we see a 20% drop in the stock market in 2020. It doesn't matter when. Let's say we see a pretty significant drop, though, over a one- or two-month period. Well, what I think that that means for for the bond market is, is probably higher prices and lower yields. I have no reason to believe otherwise at this point. You know, I think yields can go much, much lower. We can see a higher, a new record amount of negative-yielding debt around the globe before this bond market ultimately blows up, right? It could be the the stock market bubble that pops first and then the bond market a couple months or a year later, right? But what's really interesting about that to me is is where does the Fed factor into this? And and what what I get from this is that it's going to be a double whammy of, I think, inflation and a double whammy of, of low rates. So what I mean by that is is the stock market, let's say it drops 20%. What is the Fed going to do? They're not going to sit on the sidelines. They're going to cut rates, their, their Fed funds rate, and they're going to increase QE or continue QE, start QE, wherever they're at at that point in time. And that's going to, yes, I mean, largely be targeting U.S. Treasury bonds. And this is going to be an environment in which there's probably going to be a large amount of flows away from stocks into bonds, driving yields down, driving prices up. And then you add on to that the Fed, 50, 100, 150, 200 billion dollars a month, whatever it is, to help fund U.S. deficits, which are probably going to be spiking during that time period, especially if economic growth is really poor. Um, and, and 
ultimately monetizing that debt. But but they're going to be in a weird situation where you know that debt might not actually need to be monetized at that point in time because there could be potentially that high of demand globally for U.S. debt. Right? Even if even if the the bond bubble may pop in a couple months or a year later or something like that, there there very well could be a huge amount of demand for that. And so where does that go? Ultimately, I think that that's a recipe for inflation. You know, if, if consistently you have U.S. bond yields, let's say that 10-year drop dips to, to under 1%, right? Even according to, to PCE and, and CPI, that would be negative yielding in real terms compared to what inflation is, right? And let's say global uh, negative yielding debt spikes above 20 25, even $30 trillion. I mean, nobody thought $15 trillion was possible. Why not $30 trillion? You know, what does that mean for global inflation? And ultimately, what does that mean for precious metals? I mean, I think that's extremely bullish for precious metals if you see that type of flow. And, and ultimately, what happens when that reverses? Well, we'll start with what happens when it's still being blown up, this bond market bubble. If you have the double whammy of, of the Fed and other central banks buying these bonds, hey, they could even buy corporate debt as well. They already buy consumer debt, you know, more or less mortgage-backed securities. Uh, that's going to obviously drive yields lower. It's going to spike inflation. And, and that is a huge recipe. We saw it in, in even 2019, a huge recipe for higher silver and gold prices, right? Um, but then you add on top of that what happens when the bond bubble reverses. Well, first of all, you could have a situation where, let's say we see a, a let's say, you know, let's go whole nine yards, a 50% drop in the S&P 500, right? The S&P is sitting at 1,600 at that point. I can almost guarantee you that not long after that, this gold at least is going to be well above that, well above 2,000 potentially. If, if the Fed intervenes as I would expect them to and if, if bonds perform as I would expect them to, we could see gold uh, double the price of the S&P 500, certainly a 1.5 multiple of it, right? And, and silver could be inching up above $40, $50, $60 in that same time frame, right? This is extremely bullish for precious metals, this type of a, a setup, right? But then ultimately it reverses and, and theoretically higher yields – uh, just like lower yields would be bearish or, or bullish for, for precious metals, it'd be bearish for, for gold and silver if, if yields shot back up again. But what if it's because people are realizing that's a massive bubble, that monetization of debt is going to become the norm, and that current yields are far too low, and inflation is actually much, much higher than what we thought it was going to be, and on and on and on. Um, that's, I think, also extremely bullish for precious metals, right? Because then you have this huge increasing deficit by the by the U.S. government, and rising yields, three, four, five plus percent in terms of, of the tenure. And if the Fed wants to take over the, the treasury market and keep it at, at two or one or zero percent in terms of the tenure, the tenure bond, then they can go ahead and do that. But that's just going to spark more inflation and that's going to take a huge amount of money printing to do that. I mean, think about it. I mean, the Fed balance sheet right now is a little bit north of four trillion dollars. Uh, the amount of, of publicly held debt, I want to say, is something like $17, $18 trillion, right? That that would require huge intervention by the Fed to push down yields by that much or to control yields by that much to that extent, right? So again, I think all around bullish for precious metals. So so I hope you've enjoyed this talk today, you know, uh, a little bit of a deeper talk about 
you know, fun flows. And, and I'm not going to pretend to be like a, um, um, a, a quant a, talking about fun flows from one place to another or, or anything like that. I'm not. You guys know short-term predictions when it comes to stocks or bonds are, are not my thing. This is simply my preview, I guess, for 2020 and, and the potential outcomes. 2020 could look a lot like, I don't know, 2017. 2016, 2015, 24, you know, every year since the Great Recession and being, it could be a, a bit of a negative return or it could be a, a bit of a positive return. It could be a very good year. But we certainly, almost certainly are getting closer and closer to that really, really bad year. And I think we're only scratching the surface. I've been talking here for, for going on half an hour. We're only scratching the surface of the implications of a 50% drop in the stock market. Implications for, for retirees, for for soon-to-be retirees, for uh, government or not government uh, consumer spending, um, uh, the implications for the corporate debt markets because corporate debt would likely uh, have have huge problems. Topic for another podcast, um, and you'd also have have uh, a huge problem for things like pension funds and whatnot. But we can all say that for for future podcasts. Uh, again, thank you for for tuning in today. Again, if you're on YouTube before you leave. Uh, down below in the comment section, I'm leaving a link to to my podcast. Uh, the ones I usually leave are just uh, Apple Podcasts and and Spotify. Uh, you can I, I'm available on most major podcast platforms though. So I'd very much appreciate it if you if you find me, subscribe to me, and, and consider listening to me over there versus YouTube. You're going to take up a lot less bandwidth, a lot of benefits to it, um, and and you're ultimately taking away traffic and and revenue from YouTube, and, and you're helping me out more as a creator. So thank you to those of you that have made that switch. I look forward to many more of you ultimately making that jump. As always, though, thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for tuning into today's podcast, whether you're on YouTube or in the podcast world. And God bless.